Welcome, everybody, to the long-delayed episode 58 of Generation Jihad. I am Tom Jocelyn, and I'm joined, as always, by Bill Rogio. Bill? Hello, everyone. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to everybody. We are senior fellows at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, and we have been running Long War Journal for many years now. We took, uh, as you know, a couple months off at the end of 2020 unannounced. We just, 2021, I'm still stuck in pandemic 2020, Bill. Um, Took a few months at the end of 2021 off uh, from the podcast uh, for various reasons. Um, Some of them good, some of them not good. Doesn't matter. We're here now. Um, And we figured we'd do a um, brief recap of 2021 and the events in the jihadi world. Bill, we got several stories we're going to cover in short order for our listeners um, I think the first one, we will get into this in a second, but the first one obviously is we'll touch briefly on the Taliban's victory in Afghanistan and what that means. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about Ayman al-Zawahiri still being alive, lo and behold, um, at least as far as we know. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about this country reports on terrorism um, report that came out from the State Department's, so this yearly report that came out um, at the end of 2021, sort of during the holidays few things in there that are noteworthy. I think you're going to talk a little bit about the Pakistani Taliban bill and what's going on with them, right? Yep. And then lastly, we're going to talk about these drone strikes in Syria toward the end of the year where we don't really know much of anything about who the U.S. is targeting and some civilians were killed in these airstrikes and we're going to get into the problems surrounding that. Is that about right, you think, Bill, to, to dive in for the year-end roundup? Yeah, that, that seems like it'll do. There's a lot more. I mean, look, there's a lot going on in Africa and other places, but... Eh, you know, I think those are five good issues to hit. All right, so let's um, let's do this real quick. So the first one, we're getting into the Taliban's victory in Afghanistan. Bill, the first thing we've set our piece on this in previous episodes. We don't need to cover all the the recent ground, you know, uh, all that ground. I mean, again, there are some recent things, however, to cover. Um, one of which is um, Zalmay Khalilzad, the chief architect of the deal between the Trump administration and the Taliban has been making the media rounds, or did make the media rounds at the end of 2021, trying to justify himself. Um, and his media rounds were accompanied by, um, you know, some press reporting on focused on President Ashraf, former President Ashraf Ghani's decision to flee Kabul at the last minute in the last days uh, in August of 2021. Now, Bill, you and I have talked about this for a while. It's sort of weird that there's all this this um, focus on Ghani's decision to flee Kabul. Um, look. Neither one of us are, are going to be apologists for Ghani. There's plenty to criticize throughout his tenure as the now deposed Afghan president. Um, but focusing on this last this last move is really silly, right? I mean, the war was already effectively over. Kabul was surrounded. The Taliban, contrary to what some reports have indicated, the Taliban was already in the capital. Um, game was over. I mean, there was nothing left to negotiate. The Taliban wasn't going to agree to share power with Ghani at any point. And certainly not after they had already won the war. And they weren't going to share the power with anybody. Even if Ghani stepped down, there was nobody to share power with. This is all nonsense. And it basically strikes me is that the Klozad and others are trying to sort of scapegoat Ghani for their own failures, the failures of their own diplomacy. Now, again, Ghani is plenty. He was, he has a share of the failures here, for sure. We, we you know, we, some of the point we can go into all that. There's plenty, there's plenty of critiques and criticisms to level against Ghani. I just don't buy this one. Do you, Bill? No, not 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 at all. This is an attempt to put lipstick on the dead pig of Afghanistan. You know, Calizade will blame anyone and everyone um, but himself for the failures that he helped create. Again, he wasn't the only actor in this. He's but one of the prime ones. He uh, who was across two administrations, 
pushed this deal with the Taliban and lied about the Taliban's so-called compliance uh, when we all know it wasn't compliant with this bad deal that you and I um, pilloried from the very beginning. Uh, for you know the focus on the the last the last twenty four hours, as you noted, Tom, the 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 fall of Kabul, as if if he had just stuck around, there'd have been some deal to make. I mean, that just that's not just rearranging the deck chairs deck chairs on the Titanic. It's you know getting the band to play and uh, and serving cocktails while while everything is going on. It was it was the game was up by the beginning of August. You and I knew this as soon as the capital of Nimru's fall fell. This this thing was over. And honestly, I'm shocked that Ghani to, um stuck in uh in stuck in Kabul as long as he did. I mean, it, it, when you read the some reports, like you know he his personal bodyguard was saying. You know, look, I can't even ensure the loyalty of my own men. I can't ensure your safety. Um, to me, he's probably stuck around a day or two longer than he, he very likely should. The idea that some, there was some type of deal, there was some type of um, interim government to be negotiated with the Taliban that never was going to do it. This is just absolute madness. It's the delusion of Khalizade and it's his attempt to burnish his image when it's at, it's at a nadir. And frankly, I'm shocked that the press continues to go to him as a credible source on anything related to Afghanistan at this point. Well, I, I will say this to their credit. Some of the journalists have pushed back a little bit in the interviews yeah, they saw on CBS and, and otherwise. But yeah, he still is given far too much credibility on this. And it, it, the bottom line is that this assumption that if Ghani had stuck around there was or, or had formally stepped down somehow in Kabul, there was a deal to be had. It just doesn't make any sense as a matter of logic or, or, or the basic facts of the matter. But it also is a, I would say, a symptom of the wider delusion that you and I have critiqued for many years now that Washington and the U.S. military leadership and others operated under an assumption, and it was their assumption, their wishful thinking, that the Taliban wasn't fighting for victory, that the war was at a stalemate, and that there was some sort of political settlement to be had. And you can we can go through at some point this long litany of these statements from U.S. generals and military leaders claiming that there's not going to be a military solution to Afghanistan. There's going to be only a political settlement. That's how the war will, quote unquote, end. Well, no, we said you're wrong over and over again. The Taliban says they're fighting for victory. They are fighting for victory. And the idea that they would have settled for something less than victory when they already had the entire country you know, under its thumb uh, by mid-August of 2021 and was just waiting to basically hold their parade through Kabul the idea that at that moment they would have settled for something uh, less than total victory is just nonsense. It's just more nonsense, more rubbish. But again, it's a symptom of this broader failure here to understand even what was going on um, that we've talked about many times. And so I, I, I do think there's a lot of scapegoating and there's a lot of you know this focus on, on uh, you know, a lot of people are just not willing to move on from their wrongheaded assumptions. And, I, you know, I wonder, too, you know, you see now a lot of discussion about how the U.S. is going to deal with the Taliban. Um, first of all, folks, the U.S. has been dealing with the Taliban since 2010 in terms of talks and negotiations, never knew what it was doing during that period uh, or understood the Taliban. I don't see any reason to think they're going to have some some better understanding of the Taliban now. Right, Bill? Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, if there's one interesting thing that's come out of this uh, recent reporting on the, you know, the autopsy of what's happened is that you're seeing that Afghan officials are openly stating that they were misled by U.S. officials up until about the very end um, that the U.S. would not leave them. This was something that I warned Afghan officials. I know you have as well. I think we warned them on the podcast, even. I yeah, think even yeah. on a previous episode we've of the podcast, you said, you know, if you don't know that they're leaving, you're you're missing the boat. Yep. You know? We've done it publicly and privately. And, you know, and the, what we constantly heard was that defense officials, uh, administration officials, state officials, 
um, diplomatic officials were constantly telling them the U.S. would not leave and the U.S. would not leave them until they were left in the lurch. And, and this is where, you know, Calizade, you know, he knows that these discussions are being had. And this is where, you know, this is why he, you know, deserves a big part of the blame. I, I'd like to mention two quick, really quick things um, on Afghanistan. I'm sure we're going to move on quickly on this. And, and you know, it's two things that were said about the Taliban. Um that um, right after and, and really continues to today. One of them, the first is that it's disorganized, that they wouldn't be able to <laughs> form a government yeah, exactly. and things of that nature. And people were taught, remember, there were rumors that that were treated credibly by analysts who really don't pay close attention to Afghanistan, um, were suddenly so supposedly credibly supporting, putting out rumors like uh, Siraj Akhani, um, the head of the Akhani network and the top, one of the Taliban's top leaders, struck a um, mullah barader and there was a big fight in the palace. Well, they formed the government and we see zero signs that the government's fractured. Um, I, I'd, I hope we could put those stupid rumors to rest as, um, as you and I have done as they were occurring. And the other thing is the, the dire threat that the Taliban faces from the Islamic State. Um, the Islamic State's able to conduct some attacks and I'm not going to sit here and say that it's going to look differently in a year. But right now, the Taliban seem to have that problem largely taken care of. Um, they might suffer a suicide attack here or there, but the Islamic State is not threatening a sing- to take control of a single district in Afghanistan that I can tell. The Taliban controls the military, it controls the security uh, institutions, and it's uh, it's begun its offensive against the Islamic State. And this is something you know you and I have repeatedly said as well, that once the Taliban defeated its prime enemy, that would be the U.S. and the Afghan government. It would turn its sights on the Islamic State. Um, and I think we're seeing that happening, happen. Um, you know, again, there's a lot of variables in here and how the Afghan government's perceived by the, the Taliban government is perceived by other jihadists and what, how they deal with the Pakistani Taliban. But as of this moment, as we're talking, the Islamic State is not threatening the Taliban government whatsoever. So it's another just bad analysis point in multiple in a series of decades of bad analysis from bad analysts who um, should know better. All right. So it's talking about bad analysis or bad um, proclamations, let's say. Um, there was a reporting, we'll move on to the second story. There's this reporting, we'll call it reporting. I don't even want to call it reporting. And I'm not going to get into who was specifically spreading it. But in 2020 and 2021, there was this or really through much of um, – the end of 2020 into the first months of 2021, there was a lot of speculation that Ayman al-Zawahiri, the head of Al-Qaeda, was dead. There was this whole – you and I know that that didn't just – that, that uh, speculation didn't confine itself to Twitter, that it actually made its way throughout U.S. government circles, and we had asked around about it. And, and of course, none of us are sitting – I always stipulate, look, here's a big caveat. None of us are sitting in Zawahiri's living room, right? We don't know what the hell he's doing on a day-to-day basis, who he's communicating with, what what's going on there. We don't there's there's very little clarity. We have data points over time that tell us that a lot of the prevailing sentiment, a lot of the prevailing claims are wrong. Um, but we we can't say at any given moment exactly what he's doing, right? Okay, so I stipulate that. Um, or what his status is. But there was you and I knew, and we said this that when we looked at these reports that Zawahiri was dead, there was no real reporting to it. It just seemed to be social media chatter coming from very dubious sources. Um, if it if it turned out to be accurate, it would have been um, highly improbable that this that this that this was uh, highly improbable that it would be accurate, um, just given how specious sort of the sourcing was. But you know, you never you never can say with absolute certainty. Well. 
2021, we got clear evidence from Zawahiri himself that he was alive as of the time that people were saying he was dead. Remember, he, he refers to an attack in Syria that occurred at the beginning of 2021. So he clearly didn't die in 2020. Um, if he's talking about something that occurred in the first month of 2021, this is either the ghost of Zawahiri talking or he actually is alive. But the reason why I bring this up is I think there are two things about this bill that strike me, right? One, um, you know, after all these years, I still we still maintain that most people don't really have a working definition of Al-Qaeda, the comment on this stuff. A lot of this isn't really well understood. Um, there's a lot of blind spots. And I think certainly we have our blind spots for sure. There's a lot we don't know. But I don't think those blind spots are really recognized a lot of times in the commentary. This, people don't factor that into to to express the shortcomings of their own views on these things and and, and how there's a lot we don't know. Um, and here Zawahiri pops up in 2021 to say, surprise, I'm still alive. And he's released a few messages since then. And yet there's not going to be any big sort of come to Jesus moment on all this where people go back to the basics and say, hey, maybe we don't really understand how Al-Qaeda is working or how what Al-Qaeda is actually doing. Um, and, you know, look, there's still other senior leaders in the game. I think that this long after 9-11, as the U.S. moves forward here after losing in Afghanistan and so much of the war, what was known as the war on terror will be criticized, of course, and rightfully so. Um, you know, there needs to be a, a, a sort of back to basics on Al-Qaeda and Zawahiri's role and how it's going. The U.S. government needs to communicate with people about what actually is going on here, like what it actually understands about uh, this, because if it becomes an issue for the American people again um, that they, they're concerned about, then we need to have these basic facts sort of squared away. That's the first point I would say. Do you agree with that, Bill? Yeah, Tom. And, you know, and part of that bad analysis on that, right? Remember, they were telling us. Zawahiri wasn't important. He's a crank. He's sitting in a room writing about things no one cares about. And then they're celebrating his death at the same time, even when we had very little evidence that he was dead. You know, to me, that's the the epitome of a bad analysis. They just didn't understand Al Qaeda. Yeah, it was and, it was it was coming know. from the same people that basically that you know Al Qaeda is always a decline or on death's door or whatever. And you know, you and I say, look, Al Qaeda has strengths and weaknesses. It has, it's faced multiple setbacks for sure, but then it has victories as well. And you need to have sort of a nuanced analysis across the board as opposed to just always looking for the evidence that says it's in, in sort of terminal decline. Um, certainly, Zawahiri was not in terminal decline in 2020. That's what we learned, right? So yeah. you know, maybe go back to basics on this stuff and, and figure out what's going on. Um, but the, the, the second point on this, um, which I have to now remember, uh, that I was going to make- Sorry on, about that. No, it's all right. No, it's not your fault. It's my <laughs> fault. Um, the second point on this, uh, when it comes to sort of moving forward here, in terms of understanding what's going on with Al-Qaeda and and what was formerly known as the War on Terror in, in 2021 and now 2022, um, is that we don't really have a good sense of um, internally within Al-Qaeda what that sort of chain of command looks like to the public. This is what I mean by the back to basics, right? They need a ba back to basics in terms of understanding what Al-Qaeda is, how it operates, the who's who. We had some evidence several years ago of sort of um, – what and this was leaked out of the, the infighting in Syria. We had a, we had this evidence of how the, the succession would work for Zawahiri if and when he dies. They Al Qaeda was already thinking about this. And remember, there were these letters that I wrote up. Bill uh, came out of Syria that explained, you know, if Zawahiri dies, then this guy becomes the new emir, or this guy becomes the new emir, or this guy. Now, several people in those letters are dead, right? So, um, who are the replacements? Who are the guys that are next up? Um, and we can name some of them who are thought to be in Iran. We'll get into that in a second. Um, and we can name some other people here and there and other theaters, but 
I would say that, you know, there's been very little sort of said by the U.S. government about how this actually works and, and very little public understanding of this sort of line of succession because they, they clearly have a line of succession at this point in 2022. And we should we should know what what that is. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Tom, it's it's those letters, what they were from 2015, 16, if I remember. Yeah, 2015, I think 2014, yeah. 2015. So that, that, I mean, when I say clearly have a line of succession, what I mean is- it's ba- years ago now, ba- right? ba- based I mean, on Yeah, based on the past, we know they fought about this. We yeah. know that they've, right. Now, the question is, what is it now? What is it today? Right. We don't know. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, so, and, and this is this is where you and I were saying, wow, that was great information and we learned a lot about the leadership and now we- now we're kind of in the dark. We can make some assumptions based on those letters. And some of the assumptions are those who were killed since the, those letters were leaked out or put out there. Um, they're very likely are going to have replacements. Al Qaeda is always thinking about succession and and its leadership and, and the long term viability of the organization. So, um, yeah, you know, that's that's what I find fascinating covering this so long is, you know, you have to constantly be monitoring and looking and, and, you know, this is what frustrates you and I, like what we know and what we don't know. We, we knew about those letters and, you know, three, four years ago, we could probably say with some confidence, we have a good understanding of what the succession looks like today. It's, uh, that, that picture is very murky to you and I, but I have no doubt that there's leaders that they've identified to replace those who were previously identified and who may have killed or died of, of uh, natural causes. Yeah. I mean, we have, we have a list of, of guys in Iran or Afghanistan or maybe Pakistan or Yemen or elsewhere, places in Africa where we, you know, we or possibly even Syria, where we think they could be in the chain of command. Certainly, are in the chain of command and probably are in the line of succession. But the bottom line is that nobody really, there's been no, at least publicly, nobody's actually explained what that looks like. Um, and so we go from everybody assuming Zawahiri's the dead, um, or not everybody, but some people assuming Zawahiri's dead, and it gets a lot of credence to, whoops, that was wrong, and nobody's really curious about how <laughs> this is yeah. working, right, inside Al-Qaeda. You know, we just kind of just keep muddling along here. Um, so and I think that, that that to me, what I'm saying is, you know, I, I used this word in a previous episode of the podcast. Some people didn't like it, and I, it's just a fancy word for, you know, studying, you know, knowledge and what you know and how you know it, and that's epistemology. And all this is just to say, look, there are certain – shortcomings here in the epistemology when it comes to al-Qaeda and jihadi groups that are not are rarely recognized really in the field or rarely recognized amongst a lot of people who comment on this stuff politically or otherwise. And I think we should recognize them, continue to recognize them in 2022. And a lot of this is just say, you know, we need to have further transparency and further information about what's actually going on instead of just assuming that none of it matters because, it, you know, quite frankly, it could matter at some point, you know? So anyway. Yeah, amen, Tom. I couldn't agree more. People who don't like that word probably don't like um, trying to figure out how they understand what they understand. Yeah. Well, so let's move on to the third thing here, which is um, this country reports on terrorism. I always say country reports on terrorism report. So it's reports twice, which bothers my OCD. But anyway, it annoys annoys me. But anyway, um, so look, so the the State Department comes out with this report every year called country reports on terrorism. You can find it on the State Department's website, download it, read it, yada, yada, yada. Um, there's a lot of stuff in there that's worth noting. Um, some of it's stock language. It's sort of repeated year in and year out. Some of it's new. Um, you can kind of get a sense of, you know, how the, you know, at least opens a window into one part of the U.S. government, and how it sees um, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, affiliated groups around the world. Um, now, there's a lot, there, there are several parts of the report that we always focus in on, because partly because I think it's kind of funny, but partly because it's serious, but also funny. 
And one of those lines, Bill, that always shows up in the support, or at least shows up every year that I can think of since 2011 or 12, um, is this line about the senior Al-Qaeda leaders inside Iran. And this is one of those things where I, we talked about this a little bit before in the past. There's a lot. There are a lot of people in Washington who assume anytime you say you talk about senior Al Qaeda leadership in Iran, they they try and make it out to be part of some cockamamie scheme to start a war with Iran, right? I mean, that's sort of one of the things that you and I have had to sort of deal with in the past when people sort of go down that line and, and basically make it all about trying to gin up a war with Iran. And why I find this funny is because even in the State Department's own reporting, they're saying there's something. There of note, there's a relationship there of there of note, and it's something that that people should be aware of. That doesn't mean anybody's advocating for war with Iran based on this, but it is a fact or a series of facts, regardless. And so here's what the, the report that came out at the end of 2021. So this is a report that came out at the end of 2021. It's covering um, terrorism in 2020. So this is a little little out of date. Some of this information is in the report, but at, regardless, here's what their the State Department says as of 2020. Senior AQ leaders continue to reside in Iran and facilitate terrorist operations from there. So that's just one of the sentences that involved here. And there's a bunch of other bunch of language about Iran here. Well, isn't that curious? The State Department and the Treasury Department, as we've talked about in the past, going back to 2011, has documented time and time again, they, both these departments have documented time and time again, that there is this agreement between the Iranian regime and Al-Qaeda that allows senior Al-Qaeda leaders and facilitators to operate on Iranian soil. And here we are in as of 2020, the State Department is saying it's still going. Um, now, Bill, the reason why I find this funny is because the, this is how stupid a lot of the policy discussion is in Washington that, um, again, you know, a lot of this is framed through the Iraq war experience and people point to this stuff and they think, you know, it's part of some scheme to gin up a war with Iran. That was, you know, you remember at the beginning of 2020, then Secretary of State Mike Pompeo gave a speech about Iran and Al-Qaeda. And it didn't really gain a lot of traction. And one of the claims was that this is all part of some last minute attempt or that Pompeo throughout his tenure in the Trump administration was trying to gin up a war with Iran over this issue. You know, what's funny is that a couple of the accounts that have come out now from, I think it's the Woodward and Costa book and some other accounts that have come out now about, and there's also, it might be in a, in a few other books, but anyway, there's public reporting available and I, I can dig it up for future podcasts. It says actually that even as of, early 2021 before the Trump administration left power and there was the inauguration of President Biden, that Pompeo was actually advocating against striking Iran for other reasons. So it was against basically striking some sort of military strike on the nuclear facilities or or other types of airstrikes. And it's just funny to me how ridiculous all this all is that basically here, this, this fact that there's a relationship between Al-Qaeda and Iran has been recognized now across three administrations because it was recognized by the Obama administration, which sought detente with the Iranians. It was recognized by the Trump administration during the Trump administration. Now it's being recognized during the Biden administration. I mean, it's a lot of people who are who are in this who are involved in this cockamamie scheme to, to, to gin up a war bill, if that's what this is really all about, right? A war that, by the way, never came. <laughs> and it still hasn't come, and then nobody's ever launched. So anyway, I think this is one of those things to look out for when we talked about Zawahiri still being alive. And the idea that there's a chain of succession, some of the guys who are in the line of succession behind them are probably in Iran, like Saif Al-Adl. Um, there are other guys we know about who are there who are longtime Al-Qaeda veterans who probably are in the pecking order, right, Bill? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Tom, to me, this is just indicative of the problem that you and I lament all the time, um, separating facts and then the 
the policy, right? The desired policy outcome from those facts. The facts are the facts. Iran supports Al-Qaeda, shelters Al-Qaeda. The evidence for this is overwhelming, just as Iran's support for the Taliban and Iran's support for Hamas and other groups. It's This is really that three administrations, two Democrat and one Republican, are telling us that Iran shelters Al-Qaeda leaders and allows it to plot terror attacks from its territory. Now, what you want to do about that is an entirely separate thing. Let's and and to be to you know not to overstate this. You and I say this all the time. Neither you and I, I, I know I could speak for you on this, advocate going to war with Iran, especially after what we witnessed in Iraq and Afghanistan. This our our national security and military leadership is wholly unprepared in prosecuting a war to front to its um, complete completion um, to successfully prosecuting a war. Why would I advocate for war with Iran? But I will recognize what Iran is doing, its support for Al-Qaeda. Um, we just need to be clear-eyed when dealing with, um, you know, make whatever whatever policy you want from that short of war, I'm all for. Um, obviously, we, we would discuss it. But just recognizing that Iran supports Al-Qaeda doesn't mean that I want to go to war with Iran. And that, and that is what happens in D.C. And that is why Pompeo was dismissed for saying things that the pre the Obama administration documented um, f- over the course of a decade. Um, so it's it's just frustrating to watch how this unfolds in Washington, the inability to separate the facts and um, from desired policy outcomes. Yep, ex- I agree with all that. You know, it's funny. I was looking back through some of the stuff I've written, Bill, and it was something I wrote in 2006. It was published in 2007 was on this very issue going all the way back then. It was principally derived, what I wrote, the analysis was principally derived from the 9-11 Commission report, um, district court decisions, you know, all official stuff, really. Um, and, then, and then was supplemented by some jihadi accounts and others. And of course, you know, look, I mean, there are ways that Iran and Al-Qaeda have been at odds, for sure. You know, I mean, you can point to all that evidence we have. It doesn't mean there can't be a duplicitous relationship here where on the one hand, they could be opposed to another, one another. On the other hand, they can cooperate. But I look back at what I wrote in 2006 and it was published in 2007. I said that the war, you know, now this is a call for arms against Iran over this issue. I mean, a war with Iran would be disastrous because you and I were already looking at what was going on in Afghanistan and how that was turning out poorly. Um, and that, and the costs of war are much higher than people realize, and that the Iraq War, of course, at that point was disastrous. You know, I mean, the idea that you know that everything has to boil down to you know sort of regime change war, or we have to go into total denialism and pretend like it doesn't exist. I mean, it's a ridiculous false dichotomy. You know, I mean, it's it's the and by the way, the Trump administration that did act on this, you know, there's good reporting that the Trump administration worked with the Israelis to assassinate one of the senior al-Qaeda leaders who was sheltering inside Iran. That's pretty pretty far short of all-out war, isn't it? Yes, it is. Um, and so in, in other words, that even that, which was a kinetic action that, that some people may object to, but the point is that that's far short of, you know, the all-out war that some people have been worrying about. And you and I have laughed because, right, what was it? Seymour Hirsch, I think, has written all about, right? Right? You and I, right? I mean- you know, and the other thing about this too, by the way, is that you know Seymour Hersh had these pieces where he was worrying about the the attempts to cook the intelligence for war with Iran. I think he, uh, Tom, I think he wrote every year he wrote a war, a, a, a wrote an article or two about how the Bush administration was going, was laying the groundwork to go to war, and a war was going to break out that year or the year following. And it, of course, and here we are, two decades later. It's, yeah, it's twenty, it's twenty twenty two, right? It hasn't happened. I mean, can we get out, get beyond this now, or you know, no? Anyway. 
you know, one, and so I was also laughing about the fact the State Department spokesman Ned Price, spokesperson Ned Price, um, you know, he's somebody who spread this fiction about our work and others in the past that, you know, basically pointing to this relationship and the fact that there is something that's been documented, by the way, by the Obama administration, State and Treasury Departments. Oh, by the way, right? And by by a lot of other evidence, you know, here's you know, so Ned's working for this the State Department right now as the State Department comes out with a report saying, by the way. Senior Al-Qaeda are still sheltering in Iran and still conduct, are still overseeing terrorist operations from there. Well, Ned, is, Ned Price has spread the, the unfounded nonsense that, um, you know, that basically pointing this relationship or looking at into this relationship is somehow part of an effort to gin up a war. War never came. And meanwhile, your own department is still pointing this relationship, Ned. So, um, you know, maybe take a step back from the nonsense and actually recognize the facts once in a while. What do you think? Yeah, I absolutely agree. And if there's any reporters out here listening, if you want a little entertainment, you should ask them about it. Yeah. Ask I mean, them ask him, about the Iran-Al-Qaeda connection. Ask him if Secret- spokesman for the State Department. Ask him if Secretary of State Anthony Blinken's State Department is trying to gin up war with Iran by pointing this out, right? Because that was the accusation when Pompeo was the state, Secretary of State. And, and listen, you can criticize Pompeo on a number of things, but this is one of the And this criticism just is just it just didn't fly, right? I mean, it just didn't fly. All right. So let's move on to number four. Uh, you, let's talk about the Pakistani Taliban bill. Why don't you lead that discussion a little bit about what you've been watching here at the end of 2021 into 2022. Give us a little update on the Pakistani Taliban, which is, I think, one of the more interesting angles on the Afghan Taliban's victory in Afghanistan has to do with what comes now for the Pakistani Taliban. Yeah, 2021 was a very interesting year for the Pakistani Taliban. The, the group was largely dormant over the last couple of years. The... Um, for what you know, whatever problems the Pakistani state has, it, it did lay the hammer down on the the TTP or the movement of the Taliban in Pakistan after it took control of large segments of the northwest frontier, what used to be the northwest frontier province now, Khyber Pakhtunkhwa in, in northwest in northern Pakistan. And um, but over the last several years, it it, um, it has a new leader now, Nori uh, Norwali Masood. Um, you know, the, the leadership has shifted back to the Masood clan, which is the traditional leadership for the TTP. And he's been working hard to reorganize the, the, the elements of the TTP that split apart when it's previous Amir Mullah Fazula, who was not a, a traditional uh, Masood leader. And he was very divisive figure. Uh, and I think a poor leader that looking, you know, for all the successes jihadists have had. His appointment, um, Mulefazul's appointment to lead the TTP was a, a monumental blunder at a time when it needed leadership. It got it a poor leader and, and the group fragmented. So Norwali Masood has put, he's putting the band back together. Most, if not all of the big groups, including groups like Al Qaeda and the Lashkar, um, Ijangvi and, and other terrorist cells in, in northern Pakistan have reunified and they've relaunched their offensive against the Pakistani state. You're seeing a lot of uh, dead Pakistani soldiers and policemen now. Um, but the TTP also played a crucial role inside of Afghanistan in helping the the, Tal- the Afghan Taliban achieve its victory. The United Nations uh, estimated over 20, or I'm sorry, 6,500 TTP were operating in Afghanistan. I bet that number was larger. Its leadership was operating there. And now at the end of the year, you had the um, TTP Amir, Amir Norwali Masood. He, um, by the way, he did this uh, fantastic, there's a video at Long War Journal, um, that I wrote up on December 15th, um, where he, he says he's a branch of the Islamic Emirate of the Afghanistan or the TTP is a branch 
of the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan or the Afghan Taliban. Um, its leader always swears allegiance to the Taliban's leader and it's, um, the group takes leadership advice and guidance um, from Al Qaeda as well. So it's part of this network. Now, the Afghan Taliban has to, uh, um, not, they've, uh, they've distanced themselves by having a spokesman um, saying, oh, no, that's not true. They don't swear allegiance to us, all while saying they support their cause and they love their, their brothers and the Pakistani Taliban, but they don't report to them. That is because of the, the, the difficult issue where the Pakistani state supports the, the, this is the, what you, Tom, I love call or, um, term the wheel of jihad, where the Pakistani support state supports the Afghan Taliban. The Afghan Taliban supports the Pakistani state. Um, I'm sorry, the Afghan Taliban supports the movement of the Taliban in Pakistan, which attacks the Pakistani state, which, uh, you know, the Pakistani state supports the Afghan Taliban and on and on it goes. So the Afghan Taliban's in a delicate situation. It wants recognition. Pakistan is pushing for that while it hasn't officially recognized. And it wants, it, it's at least publicly saying it wants the Afghan Taliban to get the Pakistani Taliban to, to come to a peace deal with the Pakistani go- um, government. Um, a note to the Pakistani government, previous peace deals you have with the, Af- with the Pakistani Taliban um, resulted in them taking more and more territory. And if that doesn't sound familiar, look at Afghanistan today. You can't trust these groups in negotiations. So that's the dynamic you have. And you're seeing the TTP becoming more emboldened. It's, it's emboldened by the victory of the Afghan Taliban's victory in Afghanistan against the U.S. and against the, the Afghan government, no, now defunct Afghan government. And I think we're going to be seeing a rise in TTP operations, and they're going to continue to be sheltered in Afghanistan. Even if the Afghan Taliban lies and says, no, they're not operating from here, they, of course, will be operating from Afghanistan. And there's another angle to this, too. I don't think parts of the, at least the powerful elements of the Pakistani state, I don't think they really care because they still view it. That relationship with the Afghan Taliban is far more important than the Pakistani Taliban killing individuals in, in northern Pakistan or, or in Baluchistan, killing the rubes out in the hinterland, hinterlands is not that big of a deal. They weathered the TTP conducting attacks on general headquarters in 2010 and laying siege to Peshawar and taking over most of the northwest frontier province. Um, a, a Pakistani Taliban nuisance is, is a price to pay for that relationship with the Afghan Taliban, with the strategic depth and all those issues. Um, so I don't think you'll really see any movement on this issue. Yeah, you know, the, when the Afghan Taliban took over um, Kabul, there were some pictures that surfaced on social media of Norwali Massoud in Kabul itself. Um, obviously, he and his men had supported the Taliban in their war against the now deposed Afghan government and U.S. and NATO forces for many years. Um, they, I don't see any evidence the Afghan Taliban is going to betray them after all that. They're blood brothers. Um, Al-Qaeda is, of course, intertwined throughout this whole story. Um, you know, the other, the other thing here um, when it comes to the Pakistani Taliban is that the Afghan Taliban's takeover of the country meant that a lot of prisoners were released from Afghan prisons. And some of those prisoners included key Pakistani Taliban leaders and commanders. I wrote up one previously who had reportedly worked with Ayman al-Zawahiri. So, um, you know, there's a lot of bad dudes who are now once again freed. You had a lot of guys freed for ISIS um, that came out of the, the prisons, including the um, suicide bomber who attacked the airport in Kabul in the last days as the U.S. was retreating in August of last year. You have a lot of other ISIS guys 
Um, then you have Al Qaeda guys, you have Pakistani Taliban guys. So basically, this is a, a story that's going to be ongoing. I think the 2021, this the Afghan Taliban's take over the country and these prison breaks is going to be part of the ongoing story for understanding global jihadism going forward. Who these guys are and what they're doing, and it's it's got to be a mess. Yeah, absolutely, Tom. I mean, th- this is the the Afghan. Look, you know, as you and I have said, and I think we had a podcast titled this. If what happened in Afghanistan stayed in Afghanistan, you know, we could all just sort of shrug our shoulders. But that victory, that Taliban victory plays on so many different levels and, and the destabilization of, of South Asia and of Central Asia as these groups, look, they got their victory in Afghanistan. Why can't they pursue it in Tajikistan or Uzbekistan or Pakistan or in Kashmir or in Bangladesh or other places? And I, I think this is the natural outcropping that we're going to see developing over the couple of years. And if you think that's not a big deal, well, Pakistan is a nuclear armed state uh, whose elements of its military and security services are highly sympathetic, if not overtly supportive of these jihadist organizations. All right. So fifth and final story we'll cover briefly for our year end roundup for 2021 um, is that in December the U.S. of 2021, the U.S. announced that it had a conduct the U.S. military announced that it um, had targeted a suspected senior Al Qaeda leader and planner in a drone strike near Idlib in south in northwestern Syria. Um, you know what's interesting about this drone strike is just how few details once again the U.S. military provided about who the target was. Um, that is important for a lot of reasons, but one of them, one of which is that. Um, the bombing proved to be almost con- uh, immediately controversial because um, civilians in a nearby car were impacted by this, including a young boy who was injured. Um, and, you know, basically the drone war is, is you know more about the drone war than anybody, Bill, from the outside in terms of covering this and putting down the details. It's definitely not um, at its peak. You still have, you know, far fewer drone strikes today on average every week than in, in peak times in the past. Um but you still have some drone strikes are being carried out. And, you know, you can see that there were, you know, several drone strikes in Syria over the preceding months leading up to this December 3rd strike. Um, that, and just the U.S. military is providing very few details about who it is going after and why. And that's a problem, right? If you're going to go after somebody and say that force is necessary to protect Americans and American interests from Al Qaeda figures in Syria, one, you should be willing to explain how this all works together, what the the puzzle, the Al-Qaeda puzzle looks like. You know, some of these guys, all we're getting details is, well, they're part of Hurris al-Din, which is this Al-Qaeda group in Syria. Okay, but how does that fit into the, the broader scheme here of what Al-Qaeda is trying to do? And second of all, um, what why are these guys deserving of being droned, Rick? What, what is the point of drawing? Why is it that they present such an immediate challenge to the U.S. and such an immediate threat to the U.S. that you have to risk um, civilian casualties, right? And so there, I think that what we're seeing here with the sort of this, you know, uh, uh, low frequency drone campaign the U.S. is now conducting, and that could change at any time, but right now it's a low frequency, is that you still have a problem of, of transparency. You still have a problem of, of explaining to the public why you're doing what you're doing. And then you, you have the consequences of it. You have the consequences of causing civilian casualties for in drone strikes that are not articulated, that aren't explained to the American public. Yeah, Tom, I mean, for you, all the listeners, uh, Tom has a great write-up of this at the dispatch and sometime in December, I forget, uh, last month is a blur. So I highly recommend to go seek that out and um, give that a read. That's what we're talking about right here. 
you know, I think the, the the military, the government has gone the the worst of both worlds when it comes to the drone strikes. If you want to be transparent, be transparent. Explain who these individuals are. And I'm not talking he's, uh, you know, Abu Muhammad al-Jihadi, and he was a planner for the Islamic State or Harasadine or whatever. And that's it. Tell us about him. Tell us why he was a threat and why he, he was targeted and why the, ri- tar- the risk for civilians to be um, killed or wounded in these strikes. You know, explain to the public why this is important to the American public or make it black. But instead, they're, they're, they're taking the worst of, of both worlds here and they're giving us the bare amount of information. And all it does is raise questions. Um, you know, I would, I would just say one quick bill. The third option, of course, is don't do it, right? If you don't or, have- Or don't do it. Yeah. Right. If, you, if, if you're you, going if, to make the strike, do one of the two. Keep it black right. or be transparent. But they're, yeah, absolutely, Tom. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. I mean, or, or you have to at least, you have to, the point is you have to have a clearly articulated rationale for the decision that's made. And there has to be accountability when things go wrong. And part of part of my problem with this is that, you know, as we saw with the, the, the airstrike, for example, in Kabul at the end of the war in Afghanistan in August- um, you know, the, the U.S. was saying that was a righteous strike. No, it wasn't, right? We, you know, it was it, it was up to the press to figure out who actually was killed and that it was a, a mistake, you know? Yeah, he was an Islamic State attack planner. Right. That and was it. That was that all was the it. information we were getting. Right. And it wasn't. He wasn't. Right? And he wasn't. He wasn't. He was just a you know, humanitarian worker who was innocently killed along with children, you know? Um, the point is that, see, my point in all this is that by using these sort of common, you know, this common verbiage, these sort of... Um, how well, I would put it, it's like shallow descriptions that they issue, you know, to me, it means that it's not, it's not being as thought out as it should be, right? Like you should have a very, you should really, when you go to strike an enemy, you should have a very clear idea in mind of who it is you're going after. The whole point of a drone campaign is to, is to limit, you know, the impact on civilians and try and take out precise targets, right? Take out people who we really, we think that the U.S. government thinks are really a threat to the U.S., and what we're seeing here, I think, with a lot of these strikes is they're not able to articulate in clear, in clear fashion. For even for nerds like us who are covering this stuff all the time, they can't tell us who these guys really are. They're not really explaining to us who they really are or why they're such an imminent threat, supposedly. Um, that's a problem, you know. And- Tom, that was exactly uh, what I wanted to say here. When you and I, who are, like you said, we're nerds about this, when we're researching, when we're going, why did they do that? Who is this? I've never heard of him. When we're doing that, that's fine, right? There are individuals who we don't know. So tell us, if you can't convince you and me, how are they going to convince the average person that that strike was was valid, that it was important, that it was necessary? And, you know, that that is a major, major problem. Sorry, and I didn't mean to cut you off there. And, and the other quick point on, on this is, look, you know, they want to sell this drone campaign as being bloodless. We're only killing bad guys. You need to realize that there we're, we're going up against individuals who are operating in civilian environments. They're living in civilian neighborhoods and traveling on roads where people are traveling. So this is why it's doubly important to explain because you are you're not it's you are not going to have zero civilian casualties. You will have them. When the U.S. killed um Atiyah Abdul al-Rahman or um, Abu Yahya al-Libi, right? Like these were easy people for you and I to explain who they were. They were public figures. This was easy. That was, so they're not hard sells, but when the American public or even you and I haven't heard the name of an individual and then a civilian's killed or wounded in the operation 
And, and then you have things like the Kabul strike that where you and I like knew something was wrong with that. Right. Like I can't, Bill, Bill, you know, you know what, go back to the long word journal and you'll notice what you and I didn't write on that. We didn't write on that because you and I smelled a rat, right? There was something wrong there big time for us. And I couldn't prove it. You couldn't prove it. But we just suspected there was something. We had no indication, no reason to think that that was a righteous strike, as the military was saying. And that's part of the reason why we go silent sometimes is because I don't want to just parrot what they're saying. I want to I want, I want, to actually know what the heck's going on, right? And we didn't know for certain that was wrong. But man, look back at Lone War Journal. We didn't write up that strike that day. And, and I've been, to be honest with you, part of what is driving my reticence to, um, to do more on this is I'm sort of doing a reset on my own work because- we have to be very careful about making sure that we we only report what we know and how we know it, and that um, we're very careful about these information sources at this point because we've seen some high profile mistakes here. You know, yeah, Tom, I, this is your. I'm glad you brought this up, and I'm not going to dwell on this, but this has been what you and I have been grappling with for the last two months. This is why we've been less productive, why we've been less public. It's harder and harder to do this job. The threat isn't going away, but our ability to find good sourcing and to trust the sourcing that we're getting, the information that we're getting, it's getting harder and harder daily. Um, there's no Afghan government anymore to talk about what's happening in Afghanistan. Yeah, and that, that was a total crapshoot anyway. And that, and that was hard yeah. enough as, as yeah. well. I mean, I, mean, like, I could have wrote an article a day about how the Afghan government said it was going after Al-Qaeda. We looked at the ones where we can verify information. Um, you know, this is part of the, what do we know and what we don't know. And so, um, yeah, it's just, it's getting harder and harder. And this is why, you know, if we're struggling to, to process this information, it's no wonder that the U S public has given up on the war on terror. Yeah. I don't, I don't even think it's, I think it's struggling to, to get it right, to figure out what information yeah. is right yes. and makes sense. And, you know, and to, and to find new accurate information, there's plenty of stuff on social media. I mean, I catalog stuff on social media every day yeah. from the jihadi world, the problem is that a lot, some of it is obvious and is straightforward, and, and a lot of it isn't, you know. And, um, you know, look, what I would say about Al Qaeda in Syria, for example, you know, this always reminds me of you remember, remember the so called Horasan group in Syria yes. back in 2014, yeah. the Obama administration goes after him, right? And there's all this confusion over what the Horasan group was. And I have been tracking the members of the so called Horasan group, and I could tell you they're just Al Qaeda, right? Just, That's just, the funny thing about right. that. I they're, hated that term. Yeah, it was so stupid. It's it Al Qaeda. So, it's Al Qaeda in Syria. It was I mean, just so, on, it was, it was so idiotic because we, I mean, you know, Musan al Fadli and Sanafi al Nazar, these are guys who I was covering and I knew who they were. And when they say, when they say well, they're, they're Horasan group, I'm like, yeah, they're just part of Al Qaeda. And of course, the Obama administration eventually said, no, no, we're just talking about, you know, core Al Qaeda is the way they put it, or, you know, Members of Al Qaeda, right? But a lot of people took that confusion, um, which was really just a stupid word game. They took that confusion and ran with it, and sort of gave some nefarious, you know, color to it. You know, I know Glenn Greenwald, the prolific commentator, has done that numerous times. You know, he scoffs at the idea that there's a Horasan group. Well, well, Glenn, there there was a Horasan group. It was just an internal part of Al Qaeda. I'm not. I'm sure he doesn't know anything about it, um, but. That was just, you know, how the U.S. government mangled the, the – it couldn't even articulate there when it had a clear case on – in some cases, the guys were U.S. designated terrorists and the U.S. government couldn't couldn't clearly articulate who it was they were going after, right? And, Here, Tom, because, and that's because of a, a faulty idea about what core al-Qaeda was. I mean, there were all sorts of problems. Right? Like, so they sure. come up, well, it's the Khorasan group. Khorasan, of course, comes to the Afghan-Pakistan region and they had to be leaders who were embedded in Syria but really were core yeah, it's as cool. if you couldn't have core le- – like – you know, again, not knowing Al Qaeda causes a problem of understanding 
what al-Qaeda leaders in Syria mean to al-Qaeda's organization. Yeah, how they fit in the puzzle. How do they fit in the pecking order? Yeah. What, is, what does the organization actually look like? Which is part of the theme of this podcast, which is if you're going to explain this going forward, you better explain what this actually looks like as an organization in 2022. You know, But I, what I mean by this, by bringing that up, is just that, Bill, in the Horizon group, you and I could figure out who those guys were, right? And why they're being targeted. And, and there was a logic to it. Not saying agree everything that happened, just saying we could understand what how they fit in the pecking order because they were for the most part, there were known personalities, right? This is not that like the strokes strikes we saw at the end of 2021. Um, these are not guys who are well known um, outside of very secretive, I think government channels, you know? Um, and so this is very different. And so that, you know, there should be more skepticism about this, especially as civilian casualties are, are being incurred. Right. I mean, that's the point. And I think that this is not being really adequately addressed to, to our minds, I would say. Yeah, absolutely, Tom. I couldn't agree with you more. As right. usual. Well, as we go through 2022 here, and we're going to try and uh, we're going to do a reset. We did a when Bill talked about uh, sort of we powered things down a little bit at the end of 2021. It was in terms of writing and in terms of producing podcasts. We're sort of doing a reset here to figure out how to handle these issues going forward and what we want to say and how we want to handle all these different stories. Part of it is always expressing doubt or skepticism or uncertainty. You know, one of the things that I've tried to do publicly over time, and I'm not, I'm sure I've, I've fallen short in this regard, but there's a lot of uncertainty around a lot of this stuff and you have to be able to express that, you know, and, um, but also the, the, what was formerly known as the U.S. war on terror came to a crashing halt or, or came tumbling down really in Afghanistan in 2021 and proved to be a fiasco. And there's, there needs to be a reset, obviously, by the U.S. government in terms of what they want to do on this. And I'm going to leave you on one closing thought, which is sort of an oddball, a screwball here, Bill. But I'm not going to get into this. I'm not going to dwell on it. But I just want to be on the record publicly when I say this for various reasons. As we come to the end of certainly in Afghanistan and elsewhere, that sort of war on terror period, of course, terrorism is not going away. Jihad is not going away. The U.S. is going to have to deal with it. But as we come to that period, the 20-year period came to a close, you could see people talking about um, the lessons learned from the war on terror era and trying to apply some of those to our domestic problems or domestic issues. I always want to say as an American, no, uh, there's no, there, we do not need to import any of the pathologies from the war on terror uh, era goodness, in, no. in, into our domestic politics. You know, forget that. We have domestic issues. We have various forms of extremism across the political spectrum. We have uh, a lot of problems here to deal with domestically inside the U.S., but keep the war on terror thinking out of it uh, entirely. You know, it's just, there's no there's no place for that in terms of our domestic discussions. You and I, you know, we we never went along with we, you and I were skeptical and critical of some of the stuff that was done in terms of surveillance, in terms of the NSA and phone records and that type of thing. We were, you know, we you you and I are both the type of guys who when we hear that our phone record, that phone numbers are being scooped up. We're like, whoa, 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 wait a minute, you know. And I, again, I'm not accusing anybody of doing anything nefarious, but just. There are all sorts of issues here when it comes to government power that we're very sensitive to. And certainly as, as two guys who have covered the war on terror period, um, look, we don't need to import all those pathologies into our domestic discussions. I'm seeing generals comment on different issues here, and sometimes they're using verbiage verbiage from you know these wars overseas to describe what's going on here. And I think we need to be very careful about that. And what I would say is you can... You know, even if there are similarities in some regards, it doesn't mean they're the same thing. Um, you know, there are plenty of differences too. Um, you know, I always say that when it comes to people always talk about Afghanistan and the Vietnam War, they try and compare them. And I say, well, yeah, I mean, there's some similarities for sure, 
but they're still fundamentally different conflicts for a lot of reasons too. So, you know, let's not oversell the similarities. Same thing when it comes to our domestic politics. Let's not view everything through the prism of war. Uh, let's be very careful in that regard. And um, I'll just, I'm saying that for various reasons, which may, uh, may become important, but we'll talk about that later. What do you think, Bill? No, Tom, I, I couldn't agree with you. The, the, the idea that our neighbors are our enemies and things of this nature, it's very uh, disturbing and very depressing. And it's also something I think that's fact that's weighed on you and I over the last several months of the closing year. There's a lot going on. Um, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I mean, the rhetoric that, that exists on all sides of, again, viewing my, the idea that I need to view people who have different views than me on one issue or another means that they're my enemy, that they're a terror, domestic terrorist or something. It's absolutely insane that this needs to stop and we need to get back to just disagreeing on issues and and not calling each other terrorists and and trying to use the government to suppress thought of one sort or, or another this is just absolute madness and it, if if it continues it, it may be the undoing of our country yeah well a lot of these issues the reason why i wanted to decision this morning is i think it cuts a lot of different ways um, and i'm not going to talk about all the ways here but i think it cuts a number of different ways and um I, again, I think we need to have a healthier discussion about you know how to solve the political problems going forward here and in, in, in the political process and not not importing all these mistakes of the past from these foreign wars into that discussion. That's what I would say. Um, so I think I'm going to leave it there. Bill, anything else to add? No, absolutely, Tom. Thank you for bringing that up. And a happy new year to all of our listeners, to you and your family. And uh, thanks for being patient with us. And, and we look forward to getting our next episode out soon. All right, so that's episode 58, the long-delayed episode 58. Uh, Bill and I just got to, you know, spend some time together doing this. We decided to be, you know, sort of off the cuff again to get an episode out. Um, recording this the first week of 2022. Happy uh, New Year to everybody. Hopefully 2022 is a better year than 2021. And we will see you again hopefully soon. Uh, just a reminder, you can find this podcast, Generation Jihad, anywhere else you listen to or watch your podcast. includes YouTube, Spotify, Apple, and a bunch of other platforms I don't follow. Anyway, in any event, take care, guys, and hope to see you soon.